Here we go. November the 17th, 2019, lecture discussion number 84 on the book of Joel slash Revelation. This is where we are, though it's not obvious. Uh, last Sunday was lecture 83. That makes a lot of sense since this is lecture 84. And hopefully I began last lecture, last Sunday, to establish that God is within man, among man, in some manner. And that comes from Romans 119, because what may be known of God is manifest, evident, among, in them, for God has shown to them. That is God telling us that there is something about himself that is within man and that he himself is inside of man in many different ways, not just spiritually, but also physically. If there's such a thing as a physical uh, manifestation of a spiritual being, and that's a complex subject, but that is called the mystery of the indwelling. And whenever God is discussed with the subject being knowing God, God being manifested, God being shown to man, well, obviously that's accomplished in Christ. That's what he did. This, this is Jesus Christ, God himself, manifested in the flesh, the invisible God made visible, Colossians 1.15. If I had to give one Bible verse to everybody in the world, it would be Colossians 1.15. Because Christ is identified there as God, and he is identified as creator. Nothing is made without him, John will tell us, and so will Colossians 1.15. Romans 1.20 provides the invisible attributes. In other words, Romans 1.19 says that, gives us that what may be known of God is manifested, is evident, is among, in them, God has shown to them, mankind, if you will, is the them in that sentence. Romans 1.20 provides the invisible attributes, stating that the invisible God is clearly seen. You can see him being understood by the things that are made. And it's first important that you realize that humanity, human beings and animals are things that he made. We are things. I love the little t-shirt thing, one thing, two people have now. Well, that's biblically and scripturally accurate. We're under the heading, we're included in the category of things made or made things. So the invisibility of God, and he declares himself to be unseen, invisible. The invisibility of God is clearly seen. Now, why does he do this? Why does he have this cloaking of himself? I've asked that question my whole so-called career. He's telling us in Romans that it's clear, he's clearly seen, but restricted to that which may be known of him. In other words, we can't know all of him. We can only, there are only some things that we can know. Covered this last week, I hope. Because all made things, including the angelic realm, the angels themselves, are inside of time and they're finite. You're a finite being. Angels are finite created beings. And God is in, a, in authority over time. He's not inside of time. And he's also infinite. Therefore, the limited, that's us, that's the angels, cannot possibly comprehend the unlimited. But there are some revealed truths that may be known. He says so. 
the what may be knowns, I call them. Things that we can know about him. And Romans 1, 16 through 18 provides some information of things that can be known. The saving power of God. For everyone who believes, that can be known. The righteousness, his righteousness, his goodness, and his holiness. That's what Romans 1, 16 and 18 identifies as the things that are that which may be known by the things. And those can be clearly seen and understood. That's what the Bible says. It also says you can understand his eternity, his power, and his divine nature. The Godhead, his triune nature, that's all Romans 1.20. He said these are things that you can clearly know about him. And that can be seen. So obvious question, how can you see these things? He said he made these obvious, if you will, evident. He also said that he is among man. Whenever you see him talk about being among, among man, that is Exodus 17:7, that's Matthew 4, and that's Luke 4, 4, 7, 4, 12. Check me on that, but I think that's right. So whenever God talks about being among man, those are the scriptures you go to immediately. That's the testing of Christ by Satan for his godhood. He didn't know that that's what he was doing, Satan did, but he figured it out quickly. He's a, somebody that has incredible wisdom, and he would understand exactly when Christ brought up Exodus 17:7 what was going on there. That is a reference to Satan, ultimately, Exodus 17:7, the lie of Satan. Anyway, that's what's happening when God says that he is among man. And all of that led immediately to the question last week, what is in mankind that testifies of God? What testifies of his goodness? What testifies of his plan of salvation for everyone that believes? Because that's what he says it does. What testifies of his Godhead, the triune God nature that he is? What testifies of his eternity that's inside a human being? And obviously... Once we tried to attack that, we, we went, lecture 83 and those that preceded. What comes before lecture 83? That's right, lecture 82. Throw money. Um, but we, we went off into the reality that is governed by consciousness because we recognize that he has an invisible consciousness to him. And we wanted to figure out that oh, how did reality spring from his consciousness? I got a letter from a, a lady, uh, Kathleen, that wanted me to talk about uh, observational quantum physics again because she loves it. Actually, let me let me read it to you really fast. You'll recognize the topic, I hope. I don't have time to really cover it today because obviously I just got it from Dave here just a few minutes ago. Message from Kathleen for Pastor Steve to expound upon because it makes my tiny brain explode. Thank you for all you do. Here's the, here is the uh, title of the article that she wants us to explain here. Objective reality doesn't exist, quantum experiment shows. By Alexandro Federici, professor of quantum physics, Harriet Watt University, Massimiliano Lanio Porletti, Ph. candidate of quantum physics, Harriet Watt University. 
Alternative facts are spreading like a virus across society. Now it seems that they have infected even science, at least the quantum realm. This may be counterintuitive. The scientific method is, after all, founded on the reliable notions of observation. That's absolutely correct. And it goes on. And Kathleen, I'll, because I know that Kathleen wants me to cover this for months and months and months, I will do so. I am nothing but compliant. Anyway, reality is governed by observation. Observation is consciousness. And that's where we have gone into, and that's why I brought up the autonomic nervous system last week, because that logically would follow consciousness, as would the central nervous system and the cardiac cycle and the circulatory processes, the cardiac circulatory and the pulmonary circulation, the systemic circulation, all of that is... Oh, by the way, notice... Oh. It's everything is erased from the previous week, so I'm still one. One's not bad. Uh, consciousness controls the autonomic systems, the neurological systems. Note that there are three circulatory systems of the heart, just as an aside right there. Eventually, all paths are going to lead, when you get into these discussions, to Genesis 2-7. That is where God put the breath of the spirit of life into Adam. And that, of course, gets you to 7.22 of Genesis. That's the breath of the spirit of life into all things, uh, the animals and the humans. And in that sends us to Ecclesiastes 12.7. The breath of the spirit of life returns to him who gave it when the silver cord is loosed. I found an excellent clinical article on uh, aging of men. And what happens to us? What's happening to me? I was talking to Janie about it earlier. What, what is going on? How ischemia is when you lose blood supply to the muscular system. Cardiac ischemia would be the heart muscle. Not good news when that happens. But what's going on in my vein system? Because I am what's called early old age now. Did you know that? There's early old age. Then there is, what's the second one, Janie? Uh, huh? Yeah, then there's middle old age. And then there is a very old age. Yeah, isn't that great? That's hilarious and also uh, discouraging. But what's happening to me, of course, is that as I age, uh, my uh, the venous system, the arterial system, loses its flexibility. Everything loses its elasticity. And the heart is not able to contract as well as it should. And the blood supply is interfered with. And a lack of blood and oxygen is what brings in damages to both the muscles and, the, uh, and all the elements of the, heart, of, the, of the human body, for that matter, even the skin. My skin is now thin enough that I can see most of my bones at the rate I'm going. The old adage, skin and bones, is starting to apply to me. Uh, as I move around. But uh, it's fascinating to me to see w how the aging process is going on. And they don't know why the aging process. Do you, here's the number one theory of biology. They think it is an evolutionary-based system I'm diverting. They think that evolution created aging because aging results in death, and evolution has programmed into the biological 
uh, ecology a control of the population. Isn't that fascinating? See, because that makes you think, why did God, knowing he's omniscient, why did he introduce death? How about confinement? He confined the angels, but he did not confine humanity. He put this uh, death by aging, if you will, structure into place. And what does it do? It does exactly what the biologist says. It limits the population, overpopulation. Why would he have to limit the overpopulation? But think about why did, why would, and there were lifespans that were greater prior to the flood of Noah, the Noahic flood, and after the Noahic flood we have our much reduced lifespan. Why? What's the difference between the cosmology, if you will, or the ecology? I shouldn't say cosmology. That's the, that's uh, venturing into astrophysics and no one wants that. Well, what is the difference between the ecology, the Noahic pre-flood uh, um, antediluvian ecology and the post-diluvian ecology. There was certainly a great, great difference in vegetation, isn't there? Both the kinds and the amount. So we definitely had a food supply problem. And if you have overpopulation and a food supply problem, then that's not going to happen. And there was a lot less room, wasn't there? I'm absolutely on a complete tangent that's not in my notes whatsoever. We'll find out how professional I am right now. Absolutely, we had far less land capabilities. There was less room, even though there's a tremendous amount of room. We haven't even come close to exhausting the amount of room we have. But, but you have animals dying and humans dying at a much quicker rate uh, post-Diluvian. Those are wonderful questions. Somebody should answer those. I already kind of did, but not really. Anyway, when the breath of life returns to him who gave it, Ecclesiastes 12, 7, that, of course, brings us to the hypostatic union. That's Jesus God, if you will, the God-man, God becoming man that is called the union, the hypostatic union of God and man. And that, of course, also requires us looking at Adam being made in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26. Now, I should say really fast something else, not in my notes, that there's recurrence there. In the Hebrews, what they do, when they, when they, God inspired them to write the Bible, they don't always make a notation with respect to how much time has passed. So you'll read a sentence, this is particularly in Isaiah 7 is the greatest example of this. You'll read a sentence and then it'll have a semicolon or a comma and then you'll have another sentence and in between those two is a significant period of time. And they assume that you know that because to them they don't want you to feel insulted. They still write this way. But you have to just know, it's inferred that there is a time difference or a period of time between those two sentences. It's very common in scripture and not knowing that will lead you to a chronological error. <sighs> so know that about Genesis 1.26 and you can figure it out later. In any event, the God-man and Adam being made in the image of God are the same subject. Why do I know that? I know that because of Romans 1, 16 through 20. 
The mystery of godliness, this is called the hypostatic union, the Jesus God. That's 1 Timothy 3.16. Can't say it enough. It's also John 1, 1 through 4 and John 1, 14. God was manifested in the flesh, it says. Jesus Christ is the one it is talking about there. Jesus Christ is the creator of everything, John 1. All things were, were made through him, and, what, and without him nothing was made that was made. So he is infinite creator God manifested in the flesh. That is the mystery of godliness, the greatest of all the mysteries of the Bible, the 11. And Adam, Genesis 1, 26, Genesis 3, 22, 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, Romans 5, 14, is in the image of God, declared to be, and he's also a portrait, a type of God. And he's not deceived, 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 14. If I get told anything about my so-called career, is that I have said this about Adam all almost 30 years now. I didn't start young, obviously. Do the math. So I've dealt with this subject constantly. It's because if you get Adam right and Eve right, and the trial of Adam and Eve and Satan. And you get Cain and Abel correct. I got a wonderful question on Cain and Abel that uh, I'll address here as soon as I'm able. <laughs> I worked hard on that. And I had to laugh first. And whenever you have to laugh first on your own joke, it's not good news. Anyway. Understanding that Adam is in the image of God and he's also simultaneously a type of Christ and he is not deceived opens up the first three chapters of the Bible, the first four, frankly, in ways that if you don't have that, uh, then you're in the ditch so consistently you might as well move to Alaska because it snowed today. So let's repeat a bit. That which is clearly understood... He says it's clearly understood his Godhead. And it somehow intersects humanity. In other words, it's shown to us. It's within us. It's among us. And we have Christ's infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent Godhood. And that's coupled with his perfect humanity. That is the greatest mystery. Also, it's the ultimate consciousness, is it not? Within a physical human body, I have a limited consciousness inside of a frail now human body. He had infinite consciousness, the absolute observational uh, consciousness, the one that collapses all reality. Uh, what Kathleen wants me to, to deal with is the fact that if an observer observes an observer who flips a coin and the coin is in superposition, either heads or tails, until it is observed as either heads or tails, does this make any sense to anybody? That's what she wants us to talk about next week. I can hardly wait. Looking at the crowd here, none of you will be back. And that's a snow day. That's what we call schools out. And I'm with Eric on this. I'm so impressed that you came on a snow day. No one comes on snow days. But look at you, the most holy of all the holies. Those of you who are in Alaska, in Anchorage, watching on the Internet, that's right. You're wicked. That's exactly right. It's true. Why did you laugh? They need to know. 
My greatest, funniest story about pastors is a guy that told his congregation they couldn't have a motor home. I just laughed so much I cried. I still laugh about it. He got up, literally got up and said, you can't have a motor home because all you people with motor homes, you're not coming to church on Sunday. Well, duh. That's why we got the motor home. I mean, it wasn't an accident we got a motor home. It's not an accident that we use it on Sunday. I, I saw those, per but to, to that particular gentleman, he was very upset about it. That's a kind of a shame. It's a real opportunity. As you know, I encourage you all to buy motorhomes. What's that? Oh, well, no, because I'm particular about mine. I, yeah. But seriously, this is Alaska. If you don't get out in the summer, when do you get out? You're not getting out today. Everybody that didn't come here is at home watching really bad television because it's Sunday. And the church causes that. We actually make sure that Sunday programming is really awful. It's our part of our plan. But again, the greatest mystery is this ultimate consciousness within a physical human body. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that that human body has any limits. It does not. It is an unlimited, infinite human body. But there, I haven't, the consciousness in the human body is a great mystery. God adding man, manifesting himself in humanity. And this is the highest duality, if you wish to think of it that way. Substance dualism. We are two components. We are a spiritual living soul. Excuse me, and we have a physical body. He has an absolute infinite consciousness inside a perfect human body as well. And that is the ultimate duality. And I should interject that when God, when, God, when Christ, that's both perfectly acceptable, when he laid down his life, he's on the cross, what does he say? No one can take his life. No one can take it, duh. He said this, Luke 23, 46. He, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now that's a fantastic thing for him to say. He gave his spirit to the Father. So immediately you should be asking yourself, well, I got Ecclesiastes 12.7 where all spirits go back to God. So, and he said this, Father, into your hands I commit, I give my spirit. He gave his spirit to the Father. Can you give your spirit to God? No, you can't. And you're not going to. And he said it, as you know, with a loud voice. And now that every time he says something aloud, whenever the triune God speaks to, out loud to each other, why would they do that? Obviously, they're not doing it for themselves. How loud was the voice? Why did he say it in a loud vo voice? How many decibels? Oh, as an aside, notice I didn't say, by the way. I think I have a, ne a decibel meter in that closet, so make sure. Why didn't you just put the get the app for your phone? I'm just curious. You have a phone, you're young and all that stuff. What's that? Oh, I forgot about the phone. Is that possible since it's... It's attached to you physically, surgically, I guess. I don't have a phone. I can make fun of everyone who has a phone. And all of you have phones. Every one of you. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's a control mechanism for me now, isn't it? Okay. Where am I? It's a snow day. Just recognize the heavy, difficult, complex statement uh, that he makes. If there ever was one of those, this is it. He says, Father, into your hands, I, I commit my spirit. You try saying that. Ecclesiastes, again, 12.7, the spirit of man and animals returns to him who gave it. It is irresistible. It is not, there's no other option here. He gets it back. It belongs to him. He, I hear people say he loans it to me. There's a little bit of truth to that, even though ultimately it's possessed by those who choose the correct destination. But Christ placed his spirit into the hands of the Father. It's a willful act. So there's a distinction here. Why the distinction? Why did he want this to be known? Why did the triune Godhead want it to be known? And he said it in a loud voice. Who was listening again? How loud is loud? Where did it go? Who heard it? What's the truth that is in here? There's some truth here that we need to investigate. An audible statement by the, to the triune God. That doesn't make sense. So there, what's the reason for it? The obvious is obvious. After he does this, as you know, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Christ leaves and preaches to the fallen angels. So he commits his spirit and then he goes. Again, try that on your own. See if that works out for you. And, he, and these are the fallen angels that he imprisons and he makes a proclamation to them. And this, the proclamation, it attaches to Leviticus 16.8. That's the goat for Azazel. Leviticus 16.20-22. This is Matthew 4, Luke 4, Exodus 17.7 7 again. That's what he's doing. He is saying, God is among us. And how is that proclamation that he makes... Connected to what he said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I mean, that is an incredible statement. I, I, I want to just fly into it for a second. I want to define why he said give, why he said my, why he said spirit, why he used the, the analogy of hands. But I don't have time. For today, just consider the process, and this is where your phones are going to come into hand, in handy. Just consider the process. Who is Christ? Infinite God. Who is he giving his spirit to? Infinite God. So now you have a math question. You have infinity putting into the... People get upset because I leave off the little detail on the bottom all the time. So I put it on as best I can. Consider the process of infinity, placing infinity into the hands that are infinite. Let me repeat that. Infinity, put infinity into infinity. So I want you to do the math. Use your phones. Divide infinity by infinity. Let me ask you this. If I divide one by one, what does that equal? I'll help you. One. If I divide 100 by 100, what does that equal? 1. I have infinity by infinity. What does that equal? 
Again, you could use your phones. It is a math question. Anyway, last Sunday, ever so briefly, we approached the image of God and the making of Adam into the image of God. And this always results in a fusillade of questions, as it should. And fusillade should not be substituted for fuselage, right? One is ammunition volume, the other is an aircraft central body. They both kind of look the same. You know, one looks like that. That would be a full metal jacket. The other one looks like this. So they do have a projectile element, but they have a distinction. They're similar shape, but they're not the same. Why did I do that? I don't know. Snow day. <laughs> you get to do these things at snow day. When I was teaching school, and then when snow days happened, I'd have, I would be standing up there waiting in my, in my room, waiting to see who would come in. And I had a, a threshold. If it was three or less, I was taking them all home. No one could catch me. No one would know. Most of the time, there I'd have ten. But you can't really cover a subject on snow day because if you do, what's going to happen? That's right. You have to repeat the subject. And that's uh, always a disadvantage. So snow days had this wonderful possibility at the same time carried with it a, the, uh, the sword of Damocles, if you want to know. Now, let's intentionally deviate into the tall grass that is Adam as both a type of Christ. So he is a type of Christ, but he is also made in the image of God. So duality, all of a sudden more duality. The optimal approach is to note the typology and the imagery simultaneously. In other words, look at these together. There's two of them. They are not the same. Some will think that they are a redundancy. They're not a redundancy. I hope that is obvious as I go along. And that's assumed that we're going to make progress, isn't it? But let's hope that there's uh, some progression. No one could take the life of Christ. He had to commit it to the Father. He had to lay it down himself. John 10, 17 to 18. He could take it up again, lay it down, take it up, lay it down. He'd do that forever. As often as he wanted. He had that, he has that power because he's omnipotent God. His life could not be taken. He must give it. Can it also be said that no one but God could have taken the life of Adam? So I'm trying to say one is a type of Christ. I have Adam and I have Christ. This is the type. This is the anti-type. Doesn't mean against type. It means fulfillment of type. Don't write me. It's a snow day. I have Christ who had to lay down his life. Only God can lay down his life. Could it be said that, that no one could take the life of Adam? He must also lay down his life. Is that a type fulfillment? And I can hear the murmuring from the vast internet audience, vast being a relative term. 
going, oh, what are you trying to do here? Well, let's ask a few basic questions. Could Satan physically kill a sinless Adam? Yes or no? Could anyone, angelic, I'm speaking of angels here, kill the sinless body of Adam? And if not, why not? I'm asking ultimately, is there physical death without sin? And if not, how not? Does that make sense? Probably not. Remember also, of course, you have to remember that Adam is not deceived. He's a type of Christ and he's made in the image of God. So I have the type of Christ is the image of God. Standing there or put together. I've got to work that out. Could Eve kill Adam? Let's ask that. Or the inverse. Why is it that Cain could kill Abel? Again, this wonderful question on Cain and Abel that I'll get to next week. Why is it that Cain could kill Abel? What's the difference between the ability of Cain and the inability of Eve or the angels or, or, or Satan? And, and I will concede that Satan deceived the woman, 1 Timothy 2.14, and the woman fell into sin, and it would, it's, not in, it's not inaccurate to substitute the word death for sin. Sin, death are synonymous. So you could say that the woman, and completely rightfully, the woman fell to her death. And that would apply to the the fallen angels, wouldn't it? Satan certainly contributed to the death of Eve. He knew she would die if she ate. How did he know that? That was his whole plan. If I can get her to eat this, she will die. He believed God there, didn't he? Why did Satan believe God at that particular point? Does Satan always believe God? Who doesn't believe God? Is that one of the advantages of Satan, that he believes God? He knows he's lying. Does that imply belief? Aren't these interesting questions to nobody? Satan... uh, Satan has this said to him, because you have done this, Christ, who is in a judge position, the Ancient of Days position at Genesis 3, says that to Satan, because you have done this. I won't write it on the board, I think I did last week. And he says it during or at the trial of Satan, Genesis 3.14. And the this is a referral to Genesis 3.13. So let's read that so that you always have that forevermore. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So now you know what the this is for her, right? Also, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. The serpent deceived me and I ate. The this for the woman is that she ate from the forbidden tree. The this for the serpent is that he deceived, he lied to the woman. He told her that she didn't have to believe God, that God had lied to her, and she didn't believe God. But Satan believed God there, didn't he? Because he knew it would kill her. So the killer, if you will, the one that facilitated the killing, but did Satan have the ability to kill her physically? Must she kill herself? 
physically, by eating. So we have two done thises, if you will. The woman done this. What is this that you have done? And the serpent done this. Because you have done this. It's a distinction with a difference. That's a redundancy, but I like saying it. I'm running out of cool things to say, so I have to glom onto this now. That's pretty much where I'm at. As I'm coming to the end of my vitality. As to the death of Adam, who also ate from the forbidden tree, his death is not the same as the woman's. It's distinct from the woman's. She fell deceived. He did not fall deceived. He did not fall to his death. As everyone who's ever listened to a cliffside lecture knows, Adam died in sin. It was a willful choice of disobedience, but it's an undeceived choice. With that... Repeating what I say all the time, I have to repeat it. I'm sorry for this. I know you all know this, but I get so many people that just come for one or two lectures. So I I feel this necessity to put all of these things in as many of them as I can, because I know how important it is to get a full understanding of Genesis one through four. If you've got Genesis one through four, you will make very few mistakes. The rest of the Bible. That's the foundation of the Bible, in my view. You can say that all the way to Genesis 7 and 8, but at least 1 through 4. Seems like it's easier to grasp, but Adam died in sin, a willful choice of disobedience. Death enters because of his decision, but Adam is nonetheless honored in Scripture like no other person. He's honored as a type of Christ, specifically declared it in Romans 5.14. Who wrote that? Paul wrote that. The Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit. Paul knew that Adam was a type of Christ, and he knew why Adam was a type of Christ. It's for us now to reconcile all the pieces and to know why. Adam is a type. He's in the likeness of Christ. He's not a contrast. Note uh, Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said out loud to who? Behold, the man has become like one of us. Adam has become like one of us to know good from evil. And this is said immediately after God had removed the fig coverings and covered them with the coverings of a sacrifice, substitutionary animal. Animals, in this case, two of them, likely lambs, which takes me back to Cain and Abel. As I'll say really quickly and do more next week, Abel was a shepherd. Why is he a shepherd? Is it for food? No, you don't kill animals when he had, when he was a shepherd. So is he, is he, uh, Harvesting the skins, the wool. You shear a sheep, how much damage do you do to it physically? Especially with, uh, with uh, the implements. Now, they had metallurgy probably very fast. But you're going to hurt that sheep with those crude implements. They hurt them now, even with the implements that they have. There's blood involved. Um, but if the, you, you have to recognize that sometimes you, 
a barber is necessary with an animal. But clearly he's not raising lambs for food. He's raising them. Why? Because the lambs that were used by God, the proximity to Genesis 3.21 is inside of the story of Cain and Abel. In other words, they are side by side. They're close together. That's where I'll stop for today. Obvious question. Did the woman know good from evil? Or just Adam know good from evil? Because he says the man knowing good from evil has become like one of us. The woman is not like one of us. It's the man. She's renamed mother of the living and saved in childbearing, 1 Timothy 2.15. That's an incredible mystery. That's a, a verse that no one, I believe, has ever really solved. But how does she know? I'm sorry, does she know what Adam knows? She's not identified as knowing it. Maybe Adam tells her, but by as far as God is saying it, behold the man. And he doesn't say the man. He says, behold the Adam. There's no other man around. It's just Adam. There's no reason to call him the man. His name's Adam, which means man. It's, com it's com complicated. And so... What is the totality of Adam's image in Adam's typology? I see you. Yes, ma'am. There's a countdown clock. Oh, no, there's seconds now. I thought it was 126, 128, 127. Oh, it's, no, it's climbing. What does that mean? I, my, the clock is doing unusual things now. It's not fair to me. It confuses me. Okay. Well, I, I will do what you say unless I decide otherwise. Pretty much how I, just like always, yeah, exactly. What is the totality of Adam's image and, the, and Adam's typology? And this is the challenge here. After you've reached the decision on that, along comes the fun part now, as I define fun. Consider the angelic realm. Adam is created and God says, how loud does he say it? God says, let us make Adam in our image. According to our likeness. So there I have image and I have likeness again. Adam is according to the likeness of God. So what's the obvious of the obvious of the most obvious obvious? How is Adam like God? Are the angels made in the likeness of God? Yes or no? Is the woman made in the likeness of God? Yes or no? I submit that if it were so, God would have said that. He said, let us make Adam according to, to our likeness in our image. He didn't say, let us make Adam also in our image, also according to our likeness. Implication is that Adam is completely alone here. Why is that? The statement by God clearly is, is in my most humble of all my most humble, uh, humbleness. That God is intentionally elevating Adam above the angels and he's doing it in a loud voice so that no one, there's no stuttering here. So why is Adam in the image and likeness of God and the angels are not, were not? And how did the fallen angels who fell to their death, did they not fall to their death? Willingly? How did the fallen angels respond to this loud statement of God when he said it? 
How did the unfallen angels respond? Obviously, I'm placing the fall of Satan who was undeceived before the creation of Adam, aren't I? And how do I justify this position? I do it by Isaiah 45:18 and Jeremiah 4. So let's do that. Get that out of the way. I get asked all the time about this, so today's the day. This has come up so much recently. It's amazing. It's come, it came up twice uh, this last week, which to me is amazing. I've talked about it for hours all week long, it seems like. But here's what he says, Isaiah 45:18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, which means waste are empty. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness and I speak things that are right. I declare things that are right. Genesis, this, that statement now, connect that to Genesis 1-2. Because clearly he's referencing that, isn't he? I'll read that really fast. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was in the, on the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Connect that to Isaiah 45:18. Now add Jeremiah. He would explain what he meant in Genesis 1-2, wouldn't he? And he did. Let me find Jeremiah. I saw on a show the other day, a uh, talk show, that there are more Hebrew words in the book of Jeremiah than any other book. And that I wasn't, I did not know. Okay, 4.23 is what we want. I beheld the earth. He could have said I was hovering above the earth. But he didn't. He said, I beheld the earth. And indeed, it was without form and void. Is that Genesis 1-2? Absolutely is Genesis 1-2. Unequivocal. And the heavens, they had no lights. I beheld the mountains. Now that's interesting. We have to deal with that. That's Ezekiel 28. Indeed, they trembled. And all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man. And all the birds of heaven. Who are the birds of heaven? Can't be the birds of earth. It's got to be the birds of heaven because there is no man. Well, you can make the case, but there was no light. You can try to beat the birds of earth into that sentence. And I, and, but you can try otherwise. And I, Beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of heaven had fled. Well, that makes it really clear who they are, doesn't it? I think. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. Where is he referring to in the Bible? When did he beheld the earth? And indeed, it was without form and void. That's Genesis 1-2. So beheld, past tense, no light, it's unstable. There's no man, there's no birds of the heavens. All fled. 
When is that? And I will say this is a description of Genesis 1-2. There can be no mistaking the similarities. And I have written Isaiah 45-18 and Jeremiah 4-23 into the margins next to Genesis 1-2. And I would suggest you do the same thing so that you always know that that's those three passages fit together. And let me say for today, there was not one photon of light at Genesis 1-2. No angels could see the earth at all. It was complete, utter darkness. And he talks about utter darkness elsewhere. So I think that position has merit. Only God could see it. Only he knew the earth was there. And he alone beheld the earth in this condition. Now let us retreat before the troops are ir- irrecoverably scattered here. The ultimate duality is Jesus Christ, the God-man. However, his duality is added to the triunity. Deal with that. Use your phones. The Satan man is the counterfeit of the God man, a finite copy of the infinite originally, original. Now here's an intentionally badly worded question. When did Jesus Christ add humanity? That is a horrible question because there's no win for God. W-H-E-N. He's without time. Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8, and Revelation 20.12 tells us when, you can't say when, Jesus Christ added humanity. So I answered the question, yay, for the old person. Anyway, angels do not have duality, though they demonstrate physical capabilities. They eat, or at least they're offered food. The implication, the inferences is that they ate. They fight with swords. They speak. Speak is vibration. Hearing is vibration. That's physical. They ride in chariots, 2 Kings 6, 16 through 18, Josh 5, 14 through 15, Daniel 10, 20. The angels are in, the angels are divided into armies, military structures. There's the Lord's army, the host of the Lord. We also have a demonic army, don't we? When did that happen? The angelic realm has watched us as humans. They, they watched as a human was made. And that human was given great authority. He was declared to be made in the image and likeness of God himself, which elevates him over the angels. And prior to this, the earth is in utter darkness, unseen, covered in water. The first worldwide covering of the earth in water. Because there's two of those, right? But then the unseen, the other darkness is removed and light, the light of light strikes it. And that requires us to ask, what are the reactions of the unfallen host? And the reactions of the satanic host? Remember 1 Corinthians 4, 9 and 6, 3. God has displayed humanity. He made, he made us a spectacle. Said that about the, the apostles. So here's the question. What were they thinking? Sinking, actually. I couldn't help myself there. That's a joke between me and my wife. You will sign the papers. So I'm not really sorry ever about that. Obviously, my undisguised diabolical plan is to cause the vast cliffside audience, which is a relative term, both analog and digital, 
to lay side by side Isaiah 45, 18 and 19, Jeremiah 4, 23 and 26, Genesis 1, 2, and Ezekiel 13, or 28, 13 and 14. Which, as you know, was the light-filled, beautiful, fiery-stoned, holy mountain of God described there. There's a mountain in Ezekiel 28. The mineral Eden of Satan, the anointed, the selected out by God to rule the Eden of Ezekiel 28. You see, if I am right, duh. And God, Jesus God, the Ancient of Days, judged all of Satan's kingdom when Satan began spreading his lie, 28.16 of Ezekiel, throughout the heavenly host, dividing the angels into two armies who must fight each other. They say, they say we must fight, the angels say. Said it to Daniel, Daniel 10.20. When Satan fell, then the domain of Satan would have been likewise condemned, just as Satan was dealt judged, his, his estate would be judged. So the incredible radiant splendor of Satan's Ezekiel 28 abode would have become dark and flooded. Again, the duality, the flood of the Satan, satanic reality, and the flood of, the, of Noah, the Noahic flood. I have two floods. And I, I need to give Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum his much and richly deserved attribution here. By his book, Footsteps of the Messiah. If you have that book and you read this one passage, the six abodes of Satan in it, you will have an understanding that is literally lost now in the church. Did God create the earth in a chaotic state and then bring order to it? Or did the earth become chaotic because of the satanic judgment? The Hebrew word is tohu vavohu. And when that is used in the Old Testament, it is, it is a term of divine judgment. So that is in 1-2 of Genesis. Again, when God creates, does he create in vain, empty, a waste? He says he does not do that, Isaiah 45, 18. He declares that he speaks things that are right. So what did the angels think when they saw this? And what did Satan think? The two sides. There would have been two responses. I would have good from evil, wouldn't I? When the earth was in utter darkness, unseen, unseeable, what did Satan say? Was his lie about God discredited by that? Or did he have a viable response? Had the one who is filled to the brim with wisdom, did he anticipate that God would place the earth into photonless darkness? Did he anticipate that? Did they have photon-based light? Or was the first time we had photon light when the sun was hung? In any event, there was no light here at all. It's complete and total withdrawal of God. And he is light, and if he withdraws himself, nothing can be seen there. There's no reflective. Remember the lie of Satan declares that God is not among us. That's Exodus 17, 7 and Matthew 4 and Luke 4. There is no true existence, he is saying by that. There is no consciousness. There's no freedom. It's all an illusion. That's Albert Einstein. 
Exactly what Einstein said. Time is an illusion. And all of it is waiting to be revealed as annihilation. That is the lie of Satan. That's the Genesis 3 lie that Satan gave to Eve, that Eve believed. That's why she ate the fruit, because she believed the lie. She was going to find out if the lie was true. And what did she declare at the trial of Satan? She said, it's a lie. He deceived me. Her testimony is incredible, and that's why she is the mother of the living. Said that way too many times. Was Satan's case validated by the darkness of the earth? What would the angels have thought? If the earth was gone, that God had destroyed it. And Satan would say, see, he destroys things. Just like he's going to destroy you and us and all of us. It's what he's done. He's brought us out into the wilderness, Exodus 17, 7, to kill us, our animals, and our children. But the earth is not gone. It's not destroyed. It's only hidden. It's unseen. It's covered. But now it's revealed. I'm asking you to notice the themes here, right? Does God hide himself? Does he cover himself? Does he veil himself? Does he veil his holy of holies? Does he veil the ark? The earth is not destroyed. It is covered. It is veiled. It's hidden. But now it's revealed. It, the, the veil is lifted, torn off of it by the light. And it's re being restored and it's being transformed. It's being changed into something incredible. There's a new king made in the image, the likeness of God. Who rejoiced at that? Which group? Who became filled with wrath? I think the obvious is obvious. The light of life came and transformed, changed the dead earth and revealed its existence. And that it had always had existence. You couldn't see it, but it was still there. There's your theme. And finally, everyone's favorite word. Why communion? See how that fits? This is my body, Christ says to us. His body? Hypostatic union? How complex is that? What did he mean? He divided the body from the blood, didn't he? This is my body, this is my blood. Why did he divide the body from the blood? Why didn't he say, put the bread in the, in the, in the wine and say, this is my body blood? He didn't. Communion is image, isn't it? Adam knew the lie of Satan. Adam was not fooled. He was never deceived, which implies that Adam had the basics of the solution to the lie of Satan. Because if you're not deceived by the lie and you're Adam and you're up here and you're in the image of God and you have all of that information and you're in the likeness of God, then you would have logically figured out the solution to the lie of Satan. So therefore, Adam knew why he was in the image of God. Excuse me. Wow. Felt good, though. What does Christopher say? Nice push. And he's medical professionals are not offended by body impulses. Adam knew why he was in the image of God, and he knew why he was in the likeness of God. And that means that Adam knew why the angels were not created and made in God's image or likeness. 
This eventually takes us to David's heart. Oh, how fortuitous. See, Satan's position is that God is evil. Adam's position is that God will save me. And that is inferred in the Bible. Not exposed. You have to figure out how that is so. And that is all we will do for snow day.